Welcome to the Dead Celebrities Podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estate Planning Podcast. I'm joined today by our first ever guest, Jim Doherty. Jim is a partner in the private client and tax team at Withers Worldwide. He assists executors and beneficiaries alike through all aspects of the estate administration process, including probate, contested estates, contentious trust litigation, tax, and post-mortem estate planning issues. His practice also includes working with affluent individuals in development and implementation of sophisticated planning techniques to help them accumulate, preserve, and transfer their wealth. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Thank you for having me. Uh, Since this is a brand new podcast, I think it's best that we do a little house cleaning right up front and sort of explain the mission statement and what each installment of hopefully many will hopefully look like. Every episode, we're going to take a single high-profile celebrity estate plan situation, so generally some sort of family feud, a lawsuit, or other snafu. Now, our readers tend to eat up any and all celebrity estate planning news, which is pretty much the closest thing to a tabloid that we have in our niche of the financial world. And of course, we all love some good old-fashioned to shout in Freud. But the fact is that most celebrity estate catastrophes are based in the same issues that everyday clients face. It's just written larger and generally more ridiculously. So our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issue that lies at the heart of each story and then discuss what that means and how it applies to quote-unquote normal clients. The first story we're going to take a look at in this episode is the uh, tragic final years of legendary radio DJ Casey Kasem's life and the... uh, insane family conflict that continued even after his death. The story is appropriately both one of the more specifically bizarre fact patterns I've ever seen, and one that can be traced back to an issue that's actually unbelievably common and becoming more so every day. Casey Kasem, for those who don't know, was basically the voice of American Top 40 radio for several generations, as well as the voice of NBC for many years, and most importantly, the voice of Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Needless to say, he did quite well for himself over the course of his 50-year career to the tune of roughly $80 million. Casey, since everyone in the story's last name is Kasem, we're just going to be on a first-name basis from here on out, married his first wife, Linda Myers, in 1972. They were together for seven years and had three children, Mike, Julie, and Kerry. Casey then remarried to Gene Thompson in 1980. They were together until his death in 2014 and had one child, Liberty Jean. Suffice it to say, Casey's children from his first marriage and Jean didn't get along. According to his daughter, Kerry, Casey was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 2007, which later turned out to be a similar condition called Lewis body dementia. Regardless, his illness silenced the legendary DJ and left him unable to speak. As he deteriorated, Gene began barring any outsiders from contact with Casey, a group that apparently included his own children. Um, A series of public clashes between Gene and Casey's children from his first marriage ensued, culminating in Kerry, Mike, and Julie, along with some other friends of Casey's, protesting outside of Casey's home in L.A., because they allegedly hadn't been allowed to see him for three months. Things came to a ridiculous head when Jean confronted the protesters outside her home and hurled frozen meat at them. Uh, after a few minor court battles, Kerry was granted temporary conservatorship over her father in May of 2014. At this point, Casey had been missing for several days after having been mysteriously removed from Santa Monica Nursing Home. When Jean announced that he was no longer in the United States, the court ordered an investigation into his whereabouts. He was eventually found in June of 2014 in critical but stable condition at a hospital in Washington State. 
A judge ordered that the now bedridden Casey be hydrated, fed, and medicated, and that a court-appointed lawyer would have to report on his status. However, Kerry produced a health care directive Casey had signed in 20, 2007, specifying that he would not want to be kept alive if it would, quote, result in a mere biological existence, devoid of cognitive function, with no reasonable hope for normal functioning. Cue more court fighting. Eventually, the children went out and were allowed to place Casey in end-of-life care, over Jean's objections, of course. Casey died on June 15, 2014, at the age of 82, and his body was handed over into Jean's care to make funeral arrangements. She expressed a desire to cremate him. Casey reportedly wanted to be buried at the famous Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California, along with you know, where many other celebrities rest. In order to preserve his body for autopsy, Kerry was granted a temporary restraining order preventing Jean from cremating Casey. However, when she went to the funeral home to give the copy of the order, Casey's body had disappeared. Jean had moved, moved it to a funeral home in Montreal. To cap off the weird, about a month later, the Norwegian newspapers of Verdens Gang, I have no idea if I'm even closer to pronouncing that right, reported that Casey was going to be buried in Oslo, which he eventually was in December of 2014, a full six months after he died. Uh, Kasem's children and Jean are still fighting. There's currently an active lawsuit charging Jean with elder abuse and inflicting emotional distress on the children by restricting access before Casey's death. So what can planners possibly take away from this absurd story that could apply to their regular clients? Well, it's simple. Blended families can be difficult to manage. So now that I've run my mouth for far too long, it's finally time to get our guest involved. Uh, Jim, do you mind explaining, uh, just starting off by explaining what the term blended families means? Sure. So a blended family can mean a lot of different family scenarios. It's basically different than the traditional notion of a family where you have a single married couple that live out their whole lives together and the only children that either one of them has is children from that uh, relationship. Anything else really works out to be a blended family. So it could be in this situation where you have children from a first marriage and a uh, spouse from a second one that are the combatants in it, but it could also be one where this spouse's parents may all be gone and you just have a battle between children from from different marriages. So those you know personal issues that you can imagine occurring from having uh, different parents involved, divorces involved, that can lead to emotions carries over into the estate planning world. So this doesn't sound like too terribly uh, rare a situation. Many families are like this. So, you know, as, a, as a, an advisor, as an attorney, as a representative of these families, uh, what are some of the issues that, that you really first encounter and, and the most common things that you have to deal with? Sure. And as you mentioned, you're absolutely right. This is not an uncommon situation that comes up. And one of the first ones that you have to figure out when you're advising a family, whether you're an attorney, an accountant, a financial advisor, is who are you actually representing in the situation? Is it just one of the spouses? Is it both? Is it somehow the whole family? So defining that scope of who do you report to is very important, especially if you're an attorney with your ethical obligations and what engagement you may have with the client. But also separately from that is figuring out who is my client going to talk to. So even if you just have one of the individuals as your client, are they going to go home and tell everything that you say to the spouse, to one of the kids, some of the kids? So you have to figure out what information you are giving to them, how that could ripple out to other family members and create conflict without you maybe even knowing it first. And in terms of going about sort of figuring that out, is that just a conversation you have directly with the main client? Or is it, I guess it must be unique for every family, but sort of what, what generally is, is the best way to approach, try to figure this out? Sure. It's unique for every family. I'm very lucky in, in my profession because with lawyers, we need to have engagement letters with our clients. So we're going to have the at least who our client officially is in black and white, who it is. Now, the issue of where is that information flowing at the end of the day, right? That's something else where 
it takes the getting to know the client. For other advisors, it is important to figure that out front. Part of that is just having the honest upfront conversation of who, who do you want me reporting to? And some will be very clear about that. Others, if they're kind of just vague about it, saying, oh, you know, my family is my family, tell everything to everyone, you might want to pin that down a bit more and figure out, well, what have you already told your family members? If they say, yeah, tell my family everything, and it turns out they've never had a conversation with their family members about the wealth of that individual, the estate plan, the health care wishes of that individual, you don't want that being on you, right? So that person has yet to have that conversation with them yet, and you need to pin down more of, well, if you say I can say everything to everyone, how come you haven't done so yet? And it is a process to, to pin them down, but usually it's a very positive dialogue because at the front, they're seeing, okay, this is my champion. This is the person I'm bringing in to help me. So you shouldn't be scared off to have that conversation. So, you know, one of the most outlandish parts of this story happened towards the end. Um, and it was kind of this ridiculous game of hide and seek, I guess, that went on with um, Casey Case's body. First being sort of spirited away to Montreal and then eventually to Norway where it was uh, buried. And I don't, I'm not aware of any connections to either of these places. Is, what are the sort of the legal issues involved here? Is, is this necessarily so unusual as, or as unusual as it seems? It, it sounds crazy, but it's stuff, I have to be honest, I've seen before in the non-celebrity context. So, you know, one case I remember the, the person lived in the Midwest but was whisked away by private jet from some children down to the south. And then other children got hold of the person and brought them up to the northeast. And eventually they ended up back, back home. But these type of battles can come up all the time and realize that you could be wading into the area where there are criminal issues, right? Because if you have somebody who's incapacitated and can't make these decisions, a lot of states state very clearly who has the authority to move a residence of an incapacitated person. And not all children or spouse are created equal. Um, And it can become a very difficult issue when a client hasn't taken any proactive steps involved with us. Well, I mean, you mentioned proactive steps. Um, If you don't want to just default to to whatever the state says to do, um, what are some of the easy proactive steps that, that a client can take to ensure that this crazy result doesn't ensue? Sure. So the easy steps they can take is getting documents in place where you're taking care of who makes healthcare decisions and different states call different things, healthcare proxies, healthcare representatives. So designating who's going to be in charge of that decision-making on the healthcare side, then there's the finance side, and that comes up with powers of attorney. And then finally, something that's helpful is, okay, if the healthcare representative document and the power of attorney mean that there's not necessarily court supervision and involvement, that people can bring it to court, but generally it's not a court-appointed position. With conservatorships and guardianships, it's also helpful for an individual to nominate who they would want that person to be in the event that a court does need to intercede. Because it could become a situation where Say children are named, the surviving spouse goes to the court and say, I get there the health care proxy and the power of attorney. Well, I want to be the uh, conservator. That would take away the power from the kids. And the court will often look to, well, what was the person's intent? And they can say, well, they appointed the kids for power of attorney and health care. They probably want that for conservatorship. But it's helpful just having the document saying, listen, if the court does need to get involved, this is who I would want. And we've seen a trend in the law. Each jurisdiction is different. But an overall trend in the law of we want to respect the rights of the person who is having their rights taken away. We want to best carry out their wishes as they express them, but they have to express them. Now, that's all paperwork. And one of the things I always warn clients about the paperwork, while it's great to have and it's better than not having it, don't rely on it too much, right? 
the paper that you're putting these documents on, same type of paper that people file the lawsuits on. So you have to have the conversation of, this is what the paperwork says. It'll give these people a good shot in court. Doesn't mean you're going to stop a lawsuit altogether. But also, who's going to be in de facto control? So if you're not naming the spouse, you're naming a child, but the spouse is there every single day, and the child is, say, on the other side of the country, there's going to be some real just practical implementation issues with that. Uh, you know, doctors and nurses in a healthcare facility are going to forget that there's paperwork, but they may not think of it as much because the spouse is the one coming to visit and to see. So really thinking through those practical natures and also before people lose incapacity to have conversations with their healthcare providers as well, to fill them in on here's what I would want to happen if I do lose capacity. And you mentioned, you know, as you said, the, the same paper that the proxy or whatever the document is written on is, is the paper the lawsuit will be filed on. Having these things, even if they're perfectly done, won't necessarily prevent the fight. Exactly. However, you know, especially if they come out when the, after the person dies and it's the first time everyone's seeing these things. That's exactly right. And you're raising a great point of the, if this is just... You know, a document where the attorney, say, is just representing one individual. They do the documents, they put in the vault, and all of a sudden the spouse calls up and says, you know, my spouse just had a heart attack or a stroke. They're now incapacitated. They're in the hospital. Can I have the healthcare proxy that you did that appoints me? That's not where you want them to learn. Right? They're already in heightened emotional state. That is not where you want them to discover. Actually, it's not you. It's the child. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the tough things, though getting people to discuss what their planning terms are with the client. Because some clients take the approach of, listen, when this becomes an issue, I'm gone or I'm not mentally there. It's not my problem. But it really can help proactively address issues and give the client some reassurance, figuring out you know, if they name the kid instead of the spouse or the second spouse instead of the kids from the first marriage, being able to feel out family members, how are they going to take this news, and allowing the individual the autonomy to be able to deal with the situation before they do lose capacity. And I think uh, towards the end here, just talk about more, I guess, <laughs> vulgar of the issues of sort of, uh, you know, who gets what um, can also obviously be a, a big source of contention. Um, a lot of times people don't even realize they want something until uh, someone is deceased and, and, and all of a sudden it's the most important thing in the world to them and you're, and you're dealing with all sorts of both monetary and emotional value, which can be difficult to quantify. Absolutely. So, and it is, I mean, it's the vulgar, it's the talking about the who gets what, and the start with before hitting the property, not just vulgar, but morbid, the, what came up in this case of who gets the body, mm-hmm. right? And that's something where each state, again, has its own procedure of how it's done, but if you're not specifically designating somebody under that local jurisdiction, it's the next akin, and that's going to be the surviving spouse, and we saw this play out in the Casey Kasem case where, you know, the, his wishes may not have been carried out because state law basically defaults to somebody getting to pick. So for somebody who has specific wishes, right, some clients just don't care what happens after. But they should think of what would my family think, what would they want, and to be able to lock that in in advance can avoid fights before even the probate happens, right? I have seen estate plans where the probate fight, there have been will challenges, because there was a fight over the body. No one had a problem with the estate plan. They just saw that was a good opportunity to fight because dad had been cremated and some family members didn't think that was supposed to happen. So even though everybody agreed on all the property stuff, they were determined to just find ways to fight throughout the course of that estate. Turning towards the property side of things, you're absolutely right. It's People say it's, you know, it's not about the money. 
oftentimes it is about the money, but a lot of times it can be over sentimental objects that, that the person had. And if those wishes aren't communicated clearly in an estate planning document, there are going to be arguments, right? So if somebody says, listen, I want to divide my property 50-50 between my kids from the first marriage and my surviving spouse, who's from a different marriage, not the mother. Great. They may even say, we agree 50-50 is a fair split. We see it as justifiable, but I want the lamb. Then the other side says, no, I want the lamb. And then you just see the fight breaks out over things. So the more that a client can pin down who needs what, and so things don't get petty. So, for example, if the spouse assumes, well, I'm just going to keep living in the house, that's part of my share, and then they could say, no, we want the house. We want that as part of ours. You, you can see how that's going to get emotional very fast because now the surviving spouse is basically thinking, wait, am I going to get evicted from this home I've lived in with my late, hu- late husband or late wife for, for decades? So without clarity being there, you can have some real issues pop up. And in the case of blended families too, something that can often be forgotten is there's usually a former spouse involved on one side of the family, and a lot of divorce agreements have provisions for what should happen after after the person dies. And this can create, you know, even more bizarre fact patterns. So, for example, if a divorce agreement said, you know, a, mil- a million dollars needs to be paid after, since there'll be no more alimony checks. Okay, well, that's a debt of the estate. If the decedent didn't think of it, that could be coming out of one side share or, or the others. So I've seen fact patterns where it wasn't just kids from first marriage versus spouse from second marriage. It became kids from first marriage against spouse from second marriage and their own parent because their share was being reduced by funds that was supposed to go to that parent and their relationship had broken down over time. Mm-hmm. So it goes to show with the blended families, you can get into all sorts of combinations of a family fight. Well, it's interesting. It's like you have you know, a good way to think about it, I think, is that you have this sort of web of people who are tied together by a single person. Yes. And then all of a sudden that single person is just kind of like plucked out. And now what are the bonds that are uniting these people? What are keeping them? This one person was what they had in common and now that that person is gone. Right. And they're now sort of, I guess, dealing with the idealized version of that person. What's keeping them together? What are they, like, what, what do they have in common now? And that's the thing. A lot of times if they didn't develop real bonds and their one common thread, as you mentioned, is the mutual love of that individual where everyone would play nice at the holidays and the like, and that's taken away. Yeah, they look at the idealized version, and it's different, right? Even kids from the same set of parents view their parent in a different way of what they would have wanted to happen. And you can see the combination come up over property. It can come over up over what charities, if the estates had given a certain amount to charities, well, what charities would mom or dad want to support? And it can happen over the burial stuff. And that's often the kickoff to a lot of those fights as well. Where would dad want to be? Well, obviously, dad would want to be buried with first spouse. And then, you know, obviously surviving spouse may think differently, but some of the kids may think differently as well. Of, well, you know, one estate I had, it was one of the children said he would want to be buried with mom. Another one said he was in the military. He would want to be buried at a military cemetery. And it's kids from the same marriage. They're going to get the same economics from the estate fighting over something like that. And again, it's, they, you know, they have nothing to gain from where the body is going to be. It wasn't a geography issue of being able to visit. It was what they revered their father to be in that scenario and what he would have wanted. And that's something where 
you see time and time again, the vast majority of people don't want to talk about these issues with their children or surviving spouses because there's a bit of, you know, morbidity about it. But there's also the, I know they're going to fight. I don't want to bring this up. Like, I don't want to ruin Thanksgiving. I don't want to, I like that my spouse, my second spouse gets along with my kids from the first marriage. Why mess up a good thing? Mm-hmm. Right? And it's very hard to convince a client of, you know, you're potentially throwing ma- a magic gasoline. Right, no client's going to eagerly do that, but a lot of times it can be very helpful, and some clients really do engage in that process because they see it as their role as the father, as the spouse, to try to make life as easy as possible after their passing. But you know, you're not always the master of your your destiny and your control. Of you know, a medical event could happen, right? A stroke happens one day, so it was on this person's list to get all his affairs sorted, talk to his kids and his spouse. But a stroke happens out of the blue, and he may be incapacitated, no longer able to do that. So it is always good for an advisor to try to push a proactive nature with the client, even if they don't necessarily take it. Mm-hmm. The word fiduciary comes up. Uh, it's coming up more and more in the financial advisor context. Uh, it's something that lawyers are no stranger to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it's no less confusing uh, for attorneys than it is for financial advisors. What are some of the fiduciary issues that can come up uh, in a case like this with a blended family? Sure. So during the life, and we saw this come up in, in the Casey Kasem case, when you are serving as a underpowered attorney or healthcare representative, that document doesn't say, listen, son, you're in charge now. Do what you think is, is best. It's the person really has to act as the person's agent and make decisions that are in their best interest, but keep in mind of what would have mom or dad wanted, right? So that's where an argument can come up of where a child may say, listen, dad is at the end of his life. He has no cognitive function. He would want to go. I know he would want to go, right? So the kid saying, I don't think he wants to live this way is the right way to say it. It can't be, well, I don't think dad should live like this. Mm. It should be, well, what would have dad wanted? But... Again, to that point you mentioned, uh, everyone has their idealized version of the person. Another child, another spouse can come forward and say, wait, that's not what they would have wanted. And then the court's stuck looking at, well, what would this person want? What's in the person's best interest? And that's during life. And then after death, it's the treating all sides equally and fairly, right? So if the estate simply says the the, uh, executor or the trustee should divide it 50-50 between the two sides, well, what do you give to the two sides, right? Not all assets are created created equal, and the fiduciary has a duty to treat both sides even-handedly, which can be very difficult uh, to do when one of the beneficiaries is serving in that fiduciary capacity because a lot of times they will see that as, well, my, my view must be the right view because I got named to the role not necessarily carrying out what the person would have wanted, but assuming that their authority shows that it was their judgment that the parent wanted. Yeah. So you know, as an estate planning podcast, this is the inevitable point where it's time to talk taxes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the ramifications, pitfalls, opportunities um, that sort of present themselves in these situations? Sure. So as a point of comparison, when you have that, you know, for lack of a better term, traditional family of single-sized spouses are married forever, kids from that marriage, your typical estate plan is going to involve uh, relying on the marital deduction in some way, shape, or form to defer estate taxes until the death of the second spouse. That's tougher to implement in the case of a blended family because the marital deduction is available when you leave property to the second spouse, right? That's not the issue. The issue is how do you balance it back? 
Because if you say, all right, I'm going to give as much as I can free of estate tax to my kids, the rest of the surviving spouse, there's going to be an issue of how does that surviving spouse spend the money, right? If the trustee's making a lot of distributions to that surviving spouse, the kids who would be the remainder beneficiaries are going to be there saying, why are you giving her so much? Why does she need this nice vacation? Why does she have to be in the nice nursing home? Because they want as much to be left over as possible. Meanwhile, the surviving spouse may be trying to pull out additional funds so they can do it under their own estate plan, maybe to children's from a prior marriage of theirs. Where some tax traps can pop up is how do you tax the marital property after the second spouse dies, right? So when you put property into what estate planners call a Q-tip trust, which most people are going to think of in the estate plan documents is called the marital trust, a trust that you don't owe estate taxes on until that second spouse passes away. How, who's paying the estate tax on that property? What at the very end. At the very end, exactly. And something that can just come up and I've seen happen in the boilerplate of documents, a certain code section is waived. The simple just says, my estate is going to waive this code section. What it means is the surviving spouse's estate is responsible for the estate tax on the marital trust they benefited from. If they have that boilerplate language, they've given up the right to recoup assets from that trust to pay its share of estate taxes. What that means is their estate is paying the estate tax liability and that property may be going to somebody else. So classic example where this comes up, you have a surviving spouse, they pass away, and they had children of their own from a prior marriage, and that's where they want their estate to go. The Q-tip trust, the marital trust that was set up by the first spouse for them, is leaving property to that person. The first spouse is the die kids. In kind of an equitable world, you might think, well, if it's going to them, they should pay their share of estate taxes, and the surviving spouse should pay their share of estate taxes, what's going to their kids? But a simple boilerplate provision, and these are tucked away, I've seen in some forms in the back of the document, if that provision is waived, then all of a sudden you have to go to the kids of the surviving spouse and say you're actually not getting much because you have to pay estate taxes on what's going to the kids from a, you know, you know were not your, your parents. Yeah, and spoiler alert for a potential future episode, this is actually uh, exactly what happened with Tom Clancy's uh, family and kids. Uh. Yes, and it happens, <laughs> it just happens so often. It just, and it happens in the case when people are using form documents where such a waiver provision kind of makes sense in a traditional family context. But in a context where you have the blended families, different beneficiaries between the surviving spouse's estate and the acute estate, it is a recipe for disaster. And it comes up in an ugly way because usually what I've seen happen uh, is I get brought in by beneficiaries after the confusion hits because they're told initially, listen, marital trust is going to you people, state taxes to you people, you share these state taxes. And then somewhere along the way, as the estate tax return is being prepared, somebody catches on to wait. That code provision was waived. And that's when somebody has to go back and tell the kids on one side, we have some bad news for you. And it's, it's, a, harsh, it's a harsh rule, but it's a black and white rule. It's not something of, that's hard to interpret in, in the documents, but can also get lost in, in the shuffle. So this is something that I always proactively address with clients. And as much as they don't want to talk about tax apportionment, right, clients are usually, it's, they're thinking in terms of, I want 50% here, you know, 25% here, whatever it may be. But you have to bring up this tax apportionment issue because it does have a bearing on on the plan. All right. So uh, in wrapping up here, Jim, 
to put you on the spot, and as we've already said, that all blended families are necessarily different, but if you see a client walk in the door and you see that it is some sort of a blended family, what's the first thing you're thinking, the first order of business that you need to make sure is, is straightened out? So it goes back to the start of our conversation is, who do I want to represent in this scenario? And how to make sure that works. And sometimes that means, listen, I can only represent one of you. Let's figure out which one of us gels better together. And then I have some, you know, know some great people that I can refer the other spouse to. And the kids may want to have their own counsel as well. And it sounds like, wow, do I really need the lawyer up? That's one of those things. If you look at the legal bills, right? So here in the Casey Kasem state, he died four and a half years ago. There were legal fights before he died. There are lawyers getting paid to do the legal fights now. Having some more lawyers up front can, um, you're not trying to make blended families the Lawyer Self-Employment Act, but <laughs> it can help when there's transparency and it frees up an attorney to report directly to one person and just give them the blunt uh, advice. So that's usually the first thing thinking when, when they're coming in the door, but feeling out, you know, is this usual scenario where it makes sense to get other people involved and around the table so that any issues are worked out during life instead of, you know, going on four years, five years, a decade after the person passes away. Well, uh, I think we're going to call that a wrap on our first episode here. Uh, I'd like to thank our guest, uh, Jim Doherty from Withers Worldwide. Thanks so much, Jim. This was really great. Thank you. It's been a great time. And uh, for all you advisors out there, uh, remember that just because you're seeing a state, uh, a celebrity estate snafu in the news, uh, even though it's fun to look at it also, there could be something you could possibly learn from it. Thank you for listening to the Dead Celebrity Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.